Welcome to Seize the GM. I'm your host, Zended. I am your co-host, Jules. And I'm Garda Moje. Have you ever had a great idea for a campaign? Do you have a group of friends who want to play an RPG, but you have no one to run it? Do you want to see what the world is like behind the GM screen instead of in front of it? Well, we're here to help you do just that. Each week, the three of us will be discussing various GMing topics, terminology, maps, atmosphere, world building, you name it. So sit back and relax. Let us help you. Improve your art of GMing. One show at a time. Banter, banter, banter. And we are entering the banter segment. Okay, and welcome back to another episode, folks. It has been... <laughs> how, would, how would you say, guys? We it's rolled been a lot a couple, of... <laughs> we rolled a few ones on our podcasting skill. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a lot of fun chatting with our special guests that we're about to introduce, but <laughs> it would have been more fun to actually record some of the conversations. But uh, yeah. we've got a special guest today, and her name is Deanne, and you may remember in episode 57, uh, Zen had a shout-out for a book about maps, and this time we have the author with us because we're going to go in a little bit deeper in our main topic about it. So Deanne, welcome to the show. Thanks. Hello. Yes, um, I'm big into maps. Um, I'm a fictional cartographer as well as a uh, published fantasy author. So I'm not so much. I'm just now starting to do um, gaming or rather I'm just now starting to get back into gaming. But um, I had this lovely detour of, of publishing fantasy novels and illustrating them extensively with maps of my own creation. Uh, and then that led me into uh, commissions for other people. Um, and then it eventually led me to realize that a lot of people would rather make their own maps than pay me to make their maps. And honestly, I'd rather liberate them with the, the procedure and the process of making a map because it's an excellent world building tool, probably the best singular world building tool there is. So I created a, uh, a how-to book called uh, Fantasy Map Maker Jumpstart, and it basically goes into how to make a map, um, the earth science behind certain geographical formations so that you can kind of create a world that has some sort of logic and sense to it, but also how to address things like, so you put a desert where a jungle ought to be, now what sort of stuff to kind of of help you. Because sometimes you, you really, really need that mountain range right there, even though it absolutely does not make geological sense to be there. So then what do you do? You make up some explanations and you know so what? The book there's was an a... easy there's an easy way to 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 explain that yeah it's magic right <laughs> i mean i've told but just you, waving i but see i have like i've told you like my my favorite one of those is like people are like oh well why is this mountain range here there's no no other tectonic plates that would align to create this weird formation that looks vaguely like a like a jaw I'm like, well, that's because it's called the jaw of 
whatever this goddess's name is, because there was a battle between her and another god, and that's actually where her jaw got knocked off of her, and that's where it embedded itself in the planet. (laughs) Right. And for certain worlds where magic works in that way, where deities walk the earth or did in the past, like, it works. But for some world builders, they don't want to have direct theological explanations for things. I mean, the local people may have that legend as an explanation for this spine of mountains that runs through their island, but they might also... Is it real, Right. The creator of the world, the actual author, world builder, creator, inventor, might want to have some other sort of explanation or at least have a a cadre of different explanations um, for why things are as they are. And anyway, in the book, I get into quite a few of those, not just magic with waving your hands, spirit fingers, but like, (laughs) (laughs) um, you know, there's, um, there's even cart cartographical explanations like old timey map making. Isn't that accurate? (laughs) So if you need to change some stuff, you can because some map maker might have drawn the forest wrong or some might map maker might not have actually traveled there and they're just drawing it based on hearsay and legend from 300 years hence and so or you can scope. have a, yeah you can have an a, all sorts of different maps and they grow and change with your storytelling and it doesn't make it's not inconsistent it's not like you're um like negating things you said or drew previously. Uh, so there's all sorts of reasons or ways to make maps um, function. And so the, the the book talks about that and also, you know, the different actual like earth science things, like how rainforests create monsoons and how like, um, you know, like the Tibetan plateau, for instance, actually creates the wet and dry season that affects all of Southeastern China, like all of that stuff. Um, <laughs> but cause it, see, I, the best part about this book, though, is everything is in like like chunks, like oh, small yeah, six, chunks. Sixty-one easy tips, so they're all like a paragraph or two, just quick bite-sized explanations of how stuff works, real quick, so you get the gist of it. Um, and it, you know, and it also helps with things that people don't really think about, like okay, I want a lonely mountain here on a plane. Sure, that's totally possible. Um, volcanoes cause those all the time. However, a lonely mountain on a plane is going to have some meteorological effects. Like as the wind blows past the mountain, the mountain slopes will force the wind up and cause any moisture to condense and fall as rain. So then you have to ask yourself, was the wind off along this mountain hot and dry or is it cold and moist? And what are the results of all of that stuff? And you can kind of figure out ecosystem and whatever. Um, if you want to take that kind of bottom-up style of world building where you actually take geological features and craft them into realistic ecosystems. And then there's the top down where you start magic first. And then you just say, this is where I want, and this is where I want it. And then you get to kind of flip through these 61 tips I've put out and start to pick and choose things that'll make it make sense anyway. And that's where the real world building craft comes in. Shameless plug to go back and re-listen to episode 57, (laughs) which is the one where we did the shout out on this book. Which talks about yeah. top-down and bottom-up world building, as well as asking questions about what sort of terrain and what sort of weather exist. It's a perfect segue, Dn. You are a natural. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! Yeah, I'm. I may be using the top-down and bottom-up terminology slightly differently than y'all did on that episode. Um, 
Because, like, as I was saying, it's more like um, science up or magic down as opposed to um, a lot of time top-down world building is stuff like here's kind of the planet and here's where a group of people live and this is kind of how – and so you're building – you're zooming in as you go. Yeah, and then bottom up being down. like Right, and then bottom up is something like, well, I have this one character and he's like this. So he would have to come from a, a clan like this and the people of that area would have to live in a place like this and eat things like this and have a culture like this. And that's kind of more bottom up in more traditional mm-hmm. um, world building terminology. Yeah. But what I was talking about was kind of like if you consider science kind of the ground up and then magic as the top down, then you as, your, as the world builder um depending on how much magic and science intermingle in your world you can create explanations that make sense for your world using however much science and however much magic suit your palette well and i want to go ahead and kind of talk about how to put that into action so after we picked up a book with 61 fantastic tips that help us guide <laughs> our map making where where do we start making that map? What's the first tool that we should use to take those 61 tips and put them into action? For me, I would say pen and paper. Because no matter how good you are at any sort of graphic anything, um, most of us who want to make maps don't really have much graphic design experience. Um, you're lucky if you do because that gives you a whole lot more um, range in how to do stuff. But if you've never made a map before and you just want to get kind of started, just grab a pencil and a sheet of paper and just kind of doodle a coastline. That is where I usually start with my maps. Um, I actually now start on in Photoshop and I do it all digitally. But my first map for my, my fantasy saga, it was literally pen and paper, uh, pencil and paper, rather, filling it all out, um, coastlines first, and then adding, you know, the mountains and the forests and the swamps and then the rivers, and then you add towns and then roads between the towns, and um, and labels are last. But that's basically yeah. the, the, the rough procedure for making a map. Um, and pen and paper, just because it's so organic, it's so easy to crumple it up and throw it in the trash and be like, nope, I'm going to do that over again. And to not count it like a real map, which is important. If you come to your first map going, this is, this is the map of my world, I better get it right, and I'm not going to be able to change it later, then that attitude not only crushes your creative spirit, but it also creates a sense of like being trapped in the decisions that you're still in the process of creating. Uh, map making is a process. Um, and most people think you just sit down and, and make a map and then you have a map and then that's the end of it. And it's not. The actual creation of a map engenders within you more ideas about the world and causes you to expand and elaborate on those ideas. So your first map is very much a rough draft, the same way that your first story is a rough draft or your first gaming session is, by by many ways, a rough draft. It's all about the the evolution of the idea. You don't splat it down fully formed. You might finish the map, but your world is not fully formed. And so making a second map and a third map and a fourth map as your world evolves and changes and you get more and more specific about exactly how you want it to be, that's the natural process of map making for world building. 
And to start it all out with a pencil and a sheet of paper is the easiest, least official, most adaptable way of starting for most people. For me, I also have kind of a greater sense of ownership when I start with an actual physical piece of paper. There's so much that's, you know, kind of pushed these days into the electronic form and and to be paperless that when I take that pen or pencil on the piece of paper, I I, kind of take a little more pride and a little more care maybe in doing it. Yeah, pretty much. That's exactly. I I live and die by drawing it. I I can't not physically draw mine. I mean, I may scan them in as I'm going. Like, I'll finish one section and then I'll scan it in and then I'll do something else and scan the next part in because if I want to go back, I can just print off wherever I was at, where Mm -hmm. I liked something and where that break was, where I stopped liking it. That's usually what I end up doing. See, I, I like relying on digital side of things because I will, if I'm working on a fantasy world, I might, you know, jump into a generator or I might jump into Photoshop and just, kind of just set my pen to just kind of spray and just kind of like go with whatever kind of shapes just kind of form out of it. To me, I do that (laughs) as well. I, um, like I said, I do all of my mapping uh, digitally, despite the fact that I just heavily endorsed pen and paper mapping. Right. (laughs) Um, But there's a difference between like getting your first idea out on paper and just kind of rough sketching your world and then setting out to actually create the map that you're going to show other people with some mm-hmm. sense of pride and dignity <laughs> instead of just like, please ignore how bad it is. This is the world I'm making. I'm really excited about it. Um, so I, I map graphically, like in, in Photoshop. I actually do, I don't know, it, it, they're artistic, like antique watercolor looking maps. So they're more for like publication and for decoration and stuff um, in terms of like... Um, making a whole bunch of random maps because in a lot of games you need random maps or you have made up so many worlds at this point that it's no longer a, a matter of crafting each individual island and sculpting each curve in the coastline with the loving deafness of the creator of a world. You are generating another world of many that you have already birthed. And so it becomes less special in a way, um, and it becomes more randomized because you don't have time to sit there and lovingly sculpt every fjord. It's not within you, <laughs> you know? So it's uh, it becomes more randomized as you go. And so, Justin, as you're saying, you do all of this stuff where um, you, you like to kind of set your pen to spray, right? That was a really great analogy. I know exactly what you mean. But when you do that, um, it's because you have already made maps of other worlds and you have a sense, you have practiced the map making process to the point where you know what's important and what's not and what can be randomized and sculpted to work and what has to be built from scratch on purpose. So 
I think for new mappers, the best thing is to do that that rough sketch on paper before they start trying to set their pen to spray and just kind of add the randomness around it. Because if you just start your very first map from randomness, then kind of like a Bob Ross painting, you're going to end up with randomness instead of happy little trees. It's it's really not going to pan out so good unless you already know what you're doing map making then you can be more random with it and it's much more um, adaptable. Well, um, there are two questions in particular. I'm hoping that you could help us more novice map makers, cartographers <laughs> kind of work with here is some of us have a tendency to go overboard in the design phase. And so <laughs> from your, from your yes. storytelling, from your world building experience, how much map is too much map to tell a story? Okay, so that question kind of um, requires me to explain my my general stance on it before I then give my opinion because it's heavily biased based on my stance. I map to an extent that most people's jaw drops when they look at all the mapping I've done. My first book has 19 maps in it. My second book is a, is going to have 24 maps in it. Um, each book has an atlas of maps. So there's an extensive amount of mapping. And it's usually like a world map that's kind of this is the known world as a whole. And then it zooms in on different areas and different things. So it's more like fractal mapping rather than like just regional stuff. Yeah, it zooms in and out. this region and then we're going to look at that country, which makes us look at this trade route over here, which overlaps right. with our region but shows how it relates yeah exactly this is the inner empire versus and then city maps this is the citadel versus this is the glades of despair this is the magic city within the glades of despair this is the desert to the east of the mountains this is the mountain range that divides that desert from the fairy forest this is the fairy forest you know all of that um so i map extensively but i don't I, i i never mapped because I was going to show it to people. I was using the map-making process for its world-building and storytelling value. Um, Not for the end result of having a map, but for the internal result of having gone through the mapping process and therefore having a sharper, more viscerally rendered internally idea of the setting in which the story is taking place, which then translates for me as a storyteller into more visceral descriptions, more natural action, a, uh, a more permeating sense of setting. Um, so it's not that I was making maps to publish maps and be like, look, this is a pretty map of the fairy forest. I mapped the fairy forest before editing the chapter where stuff happens in the fairy forest as part of my writing process to get me geared up for the editing and to um, kind of, you know, editing is like a barren wasteland of slogging through a desert of dry, <laughs> dusty words and prying the diamonds of the rough out of the, yeah, it's, so editing is a challenge for me and mapping is fun. So I break up the chapters of editing with maps to make the, the <laughs> to make booking more fun for me. So in that sense, when you say how much mapping is too much, I really have to say no amount of mapping is too much as long as you know 
what your map audience is, why you're making your map. What's the point of it? Are you doing it like I was doing it as a as a creative and aesthetic, but also storytelling related break respite from the dry slog of editing? Or are you making one map to print out and frame and show your players in a game? This is the world that we're playing in. Here's one city. Here's the other. These are travel routes. Is it going to be more of a functional map? The thing is, like with game maps, they're navigatory. People in games use maps to navigate. When you, if you've ever played a Legend of Zelda game, they have very extensive <laughs> maps, and it's all for navigation. You don't have the map all there, fully decorated in the corner going, oh, look, isn't Hyrule pretty? It's not like that. You want to know how to get to Death Mountain. And that's different than in a book, where you are looking at the map as a... Um, kind of a guide. Yeah, it's an augmentation of the story rather than a navigational tool. Because so see, knowing- there are now. Now here is a place where too much map would be. <laughs> if if you've ever read um, the Wheel of Time, because the I first book, I've been told I should, but no, you should not, because the first <laughs> book takes place over like twenty three miles. That's all that they travel in the first book. Is like twenty some miles. That's it. And that's like there's this map, huge maybe? map. No, there's like a huge map showing like this is the known world, and they travel like what is like a pencil mark <laughs> out of the town that they're in. Like that's so it. Would would you say that it's too much map when it overwhelms your ability to make a description? Well, I don't think that as a world builder, your however much mapping you're doing, it's never going to overwhelm your your ability to describe the world. The more mapping you do, the better you are going to be able to describe your world in visceral immersive detail, straight up. But if you're sharing your maps with your players, or in my my case, like, or you know, in storyteller's case, if you're sharing um, your map with like your readers, you know, if you're an author or, or some some such, then your reader, not being you, has the potential to get overwhelmed by the sheer amount of mapping you've done. And so, presenting the maps in a way that does not overwhelm them is imperative. Otherwise, you can very easily over map and your players get overwhelmed or your audience gets overwhelmed and it's like oh there's this huge map and they've traveled a pencil mark but then you just show the zoom in of it and there's all of this like oh and then they've traveled through this you know pinball machine of all of these routes based on the zoomed in map and it's it can get to be too much it can um the story that you're telling is the main um impediment to how much map your audience can take (laughs) if you're telling an epic story that crosses oceans and landforms and continents then you're gonna need an epic map that shows all of that Um, and you might very well need to zoom in on different regions as more localized events occur but if you're telling a short story if you're running a short campaign and it runs from the village to the you know to the castle and back you don't really need an extensive map and to create an extensive map at that point would kind of as as you were saying earlier it gives you this sense of like the world is so huge and i am but a mode of dust smearing my way forth from the village and 
at that point, yeah, is that too much map? In a certain sense, yes. The map has too large a scale. It's showing more than the player slash character slash audience can really can really appreciate it isn't relevant to the story um choosing your size and scale is another thing that i talk about in my uh in that in that book we've discussed my jumpstart guide uh because size and scale matter just as much as the actual content that you're mapping you have to make choices of size and scale before any map becomes relevant and you have to know who your map audience is and what your goals are for the map itself before you can choose an appropriate size and scale so this comes really full circle in terms of like how much is too much or how much is is just enough mapping because it's going to be intensely individual every Every world builder and every story told will have different requirements um, as per the maps involved. You can have lots of maps and have it not be overwhelming and pull off a story immaculately. Fingers crossed that's how my fantasy novels are. (laughs) 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 What with 19 maps, that has potential to be overwhelming. But I like to think I did it in a way that makes um, makes it flow with the narrative. Um, and you can also just have this big atlas of maps and throw it down on the table and be like, there you are, players, good luck, and then have them try and navigate their way, you know, to Hell's Edge and beyond. And and it can be too much and they can get overwhelmed. It's It's about you, your world, the size and scale of it, the size and scale of your story, and also the capacity of your players or the capacity of your audience. If the people you're engaging with, if your audience is not really a map sort of audience and they're really more theater of the mind sort of folk, then you're not going to need as much of a map as if you have really heavy duty battle map style people who want to see how many miles it is to the next place, things like that. The mapping has to incorporate the needs of the audience, whether they're players in a game or they're readers of a book. Well, and I think that also kind of hits on, you know, how map is too little a map. But to kind of wrap up our really fantastic talk about the storytelling and the maps, I wanted to ask you, what's your favorite thing to map that doesn't exist in our world? My favorite thing to map that doesn't exist in our world? That's a difficult question, first of all, because there's so many things that exist in our world that... um, are out there, but just not heavily publicized or or anything. There's you know there's places that uh, we can't explain even in, in on Earth today. We have things like the Nazca lines, where some people are like aliens, and some people are like ancient people with shovels, and you know people don't know what happened. Um, there's things like Stonehenge. There's places like Angkor Wat that kind of defy scientific description and um, conventional historical chronology and stuff. And there's a lot of questions that have been left unanswered or just kind of swept under the rug because scientists are uncomfortable not having answers. Um, The Kalahari Desert, for instance, um, in Africa, it Mm. is covered by these strange little craters. They're just little circles in the sand and nothing appears to cause them 
Nothing appears to, it, it's not an animal that creates this little circle. It's not a fungus. It's not some sort of weird reflection of light. There's no real explanation for why these little craters are everywhere in the Kalihari Desert. And yet they're there and scientists don't know why. So they just say strange geological formation, weird circles, and they move on. But like, why is that there? Why is that there on our earth? We don't have an explanation for that. And so of course you could have something that mysterious and inexplicable and then some in a fantasy world. So when you ask me like, what do I like to map that doesn't exist in our world it's kind of this catch-22 there's so much that already does exist i can't even really think of stuff that doesn't exist that you would put on a map um aside from artificial things man-made things human things or elf things or dwarf things that that don't exist in real life because the people who made them are fictional but in terms of actual geo- geographical features and things like if you're making an earth-like world you're uh <laughs> you're going to you're going to have an earth-like map um yeah now all of all of that being said in my fantasy world there are merfolk who obviously or you know <laughs> um <laughs> apparently don't exist in our world right as uh, and far, they live as far as we as know far right as now we could tell right <laughs> at least not the way i have them with their ability to tell the future and all this stuff their entire race <laughs> can tell the future and one of my big like what if sort of things for the story was like well if everyone in the whole race can tell the future what kind of culture does that create what kind of society exists when everyone knows what's going to happen tomorrow and in 10 years and in a hundred years and in a thousand years like what does that mean for a society but anyway they live under the water because they're merfolk and they cultivate these coral reefs where they live so they live in living coral structures that they have carefully sculpted over eons by means of parrotfish that scrape the uh, coral smooth where they don't want it to grow and they encourage growth in other areas and stuff so they've got these coral cities and things and I had to map some of them along with a, a kelp forest area for the merfolk and they were quite a challenge um <laughs> <laughs> it took me a while to figure out how to make it look like kelp on a map. And then it took me a while to figure out how to make that look like coral on a map. And and I think that has been my, my biggest challenge yet, just because humans don't tend to map coral reefs in terms of um, buildings. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so that was a fun challenge. Um, yeah, but that's, I mean, I think that's been the most difficult just because it's been the most unearth-like thing i've ever mapped that in the nine hells i've mapped the hells before and that's always fun and different you had trouble with that since dante i was gonna say you didn't just do dante's i mean come on oh no i actually i was pretty scared when i started the map just because i was like i what did i get myself into why did i think i could map the hells you know this this churning realm of like rocks and lava that's like slowly vortexing towards a magnetic core so magnetic north points directly in towards the ninth hell at the center with the black citadel and stuff so it's like i had to make a polar map first of all because of the magnetism and then like I had to actually figure out how to map this area and stuff. So there's like chasms of lava and then all of these rock formations and things. It was a challenge. Um, 
but it came out pretty cool. <laughs> that sounds awesome. And, <laughs> thanks. There, uh, you can see all my maps free on my website. It's dnfrost.com slash maps. That'll show you the 19 from book one. And uh, the Nine Hells map is the map for part four. So okay. it's like map 12 or 13 or something like that. Okay. If you want to go look. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> I hope that answered your question. My favorite non-Earth-like thing to map. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> well, that would be it. I mean, yeah. mapping the hills is pretty much not something that you see. <laughs> not really. So. And then I had to zoom in. I had to make a map of the eighth <laughs> hell specifically, which which was easy now that I had done the, the nine hells map. But then when it came to labeling stuff, it became very <laughs> difficult because the, the language I invented for hells, I made a lingua franca um, for the demons, like a... Um, a universal tongue that everybody speaks. And um, then their own. That's, yeah. that's their, th- there's the common tongue, and then they all have their own dialects of it. Um, and then there's the dark tongue, which is actually the, the, the language of Father himself, the deity that right, rules from the Black Citadel. The demons have a very cool theology. Do not let me go into it, or this <laughs> whole show will be over. But, um, that is what we often say, a topic for another show in designing yeah. mythologies. <laughs> yeah, um, have me back for that one for sure. I'll I'll, I'll go off the rails. It'll be fun. Um, but yeah, f- with the labels for it, since I had invented this language, I had to create labels using the language. And one of my rules for label making is you want to have most of your labels in English because your readers are English or speak English. Okay. Um, and then you want to have some labels that are like. In the foreign language you've invented, if if you've invented one. And even if not, you want some that are like names or things that don't have translations, things that feel truly foreign. And then combinations of stuff where you have like a made-up word and then the word like creek or bluff or point or something with it. So you get some sort of combination. And then, you know, but mostly like boring names like East Point and Westbrook and Springfield. Those are everywhere all the time. That's how people name stuff. So you have to have most of them like that. But like demons don't have springs or or fields or anything like that. So I was just like, ah! That and the uh, the language I made up has no vowels in it. Oh. So it's it sounds like a cappuccino machine. Um, <laughs> the concept is that instead of vowels, it uses fricatives, which are consonants oh. that don't require stopping. So like S or F or V, um, those can be held out um, into a syllable, whereas uh, stops are things like T or K where there's a definitive stoppage of noise. You can't hold out the letter K. You just wait a long time before letting it go. Um, and so through that combination, I created syllables. And so if you do you want to hear the, the name of the language that sounds like a cappuccino machine? Yes. <laughs> Here, we'll do this thing. Is the name of it. I don't even know if it recorded that properly. Probably not. Oh, that's but, um, awesome. So writing that in English letters is difficult. Uh, you know what, you though? <laughs> you know what, what, though? This this is very similar to you know other <laughs> other languages that do exist, like Welsh and Irish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, um, international Armenian. international Armenian phonetic alphabet. What, yeah, the IPA is great. International phonetic alphabet. I can actually transliterate all of the cappuccino language into. 
IPA and like you can look at it phonetically and it actually breaks down phonetically into morphemes that create structure and meaning and syntax and lexicon and it's like it's a functioning language because I got a degree in linguistics mostly so I could create languages for my novels. <laughs> well, and that I think is a topic for another show yeah. because I, yeah. anyone who's listened to the show knows that I start going into geeky mode and this is exactly where I would start digging in. Yeah. But we do have a little bit of a time crunch to try to keep and we don't want to keep you too long. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I'll go no. off. Let's say it's fantastic, and yeah. we're just going to have to have you back. That's sweet. Of it. Sign me up. <laughs> and if you'd like you to stick around, what? what we might end up doing, I might actually see if I can get her on for a Patreon exclusive episode. Ooh, that sounds swanky. Yeah, and we'll we'll, we'll talk about, about all kinds of crazy stuff, but. If you've heard this episode and you think DN is just a bee's <laughs> and want to hear more, reach out and let us know on Twitter, Instagram, Patreon, if you've got a few dollars to send us, or find us on our Facebook group, facebook.com slash group slash Seize the GM. Yes, all of those things. Do <laughs> all of them. Absolutely. <laughs> but for now, with that main topic over, we're going to go ahead and roll right in to our stat blocks. And now we enter Stat Blocks. This is a segment where you can use something that we've created in your game tonight. Okay. <sighs> All right, folks. Zen, you go first. Are you ready for it? <laughs> I got. It's the most amazing. It's nothing. <laughs> I, I have been so, so swamped this week with about a million little projects and contemplating how I'm going to uh, be revamping the Patreon site. I have not had any time to work on something. So um, I instead nominate Null. Okie dokie. I think I missed one last time, so just as well I go first. So, kept it simple this week. The Pitcher's Talon. Small, easy to miss, but incredibly sharp. This talon appears at first glance to be an ordinary piece of keratin torn from a limb of some bird of prey attached to a cord and able to be worn as a necklace. Whenever this talon is held or worn on the body, its properties extend to certain objects thrown by the wearer. The objects must be small enough to be thrown one-handed, and once released, they will sail towards the thrower's exact goal, regardless of the distance. Any distance. If a plane is spotted miles away, the thrown object will fly to it at uncanny speeds. Distant moons are not off-limits, although the survivability of objects traveling through open space at such speeds should be considered. Note, it is not recommended to thrown live objects in this manner. A clear view must be visible between the thrower and the target, and even moderate fog can muddle the effects of the talon. That's neat. That is cool. Kept it simple. <laughs> that is so, so cool. I'm just thinking about it now. That's just, yeah. Mm-hmm. Just how far away can you see? <laughs> <laughs> Could so you throw it at a star? Yes. 
if you can see the stars. Yep. I mean, technically, you are seeing it. You just may not be able to see it by the time it reaches mm-hmm. here. It may be gone. Might take a bit. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, what, you can happen, throw... what happens if it burns out midway through transit? Assuming we're, we're not going super luminal, but that's a whole different set of conversations. <laughs> I mean, it depends on how fast you want to say it travels. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's also cool. consider that if you throw it at something and it's moving, it will still track that object. Oh, yeah. That's really cool. I like that mm-hmm. idea. <laughs> so, Ganamanje, you're up. All right. Well, with the uh, return of professional American football season, we're going to talk about the Sacramento Letterman jacket. You see it sitting in the thrift shop alone in the corner of the store, a Letterman jacket with a stylized M over the left breast, a classic piece of Americana from some unknown school. And it's turning chilly right now, so you think it's as good as anything to keep you warm and quite a steal for $5. It even gives you a little bit of flair and style, since you never quite made the team after the car wreck that left your knee just a little bit off. The jacket felt a little heavy the first few times you wore it, but it cut the wind well. It felt like a pick-me-up, a boost, a bit of inspiration to move your feet just a little bit faster. It's like a good coach that always knew just the right words of motivation. It felt good to actually move again, like high school. It felt like you had found some little part of your youth. And never mind the occasional nosebleed or that a friend of yours would keep tripping over their feet when you were around. The warmth of the jacket was something that brought you hope. It's the question of the M, the sacramentum, from the tag that keeps coming back to your brain. There's no record of this school anywhere in the tri-state area, and its mysteries is nearly unfathomable. The worst part is that you're starting to see other people in these jackets, but none of them will talk to you. They seem to be watching you, and and when you run, it's almost like they're evaluating you, scouting you for a new team. Oh, (laughs) I like that. That's really fun. That is fun. I do. And uh, Sacramentum is Latin for mystery, by the way, which is why it's the Sacramentum jacket with an M letter. Yes. So. yes. <laughs> oh, oh, that is good. That is good. Well, since we, we don't have anything else, we're just going to go ahead and flip on into our lexicon. Lexicon, where we give you... Cool words to help improve your vocabulary. All right, Zen. What do you have for us? (sighs) Okay. A fumarole. Not a fumarole. Fumarole. Wait, wait. I'm going to guess. Okay. It's a type of fancy dinner roll. No. Uh, it's, um, oh, the, the smoked wines, um, you age, you age wines in it. Oh, good answer. Good answer. Good answer. That is a good answer, but no, that is not what it is. Okay. Fumarole. It is a noun. 
It is actually a hole in a volcanic region from which hot gases and vapors issue. <laughs> yes. It's, uh, its origins and etymology are from... Uh, Italian. Italian. In the middle mm-hmm. of the country. Napoleon, uh, Neapolitan, Naples. specifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, from late Latin, which is... Uh, I'm not even going to attempt it because I will screw that all up because I never took Latin in school. But it's, it's Latin for <laughs> vent. Uh, and the other one is a smoke chamber for aging wine. Thank you. So, I, I I know my Italian wine. Yes, you do. So, its first known use was in 1811, and its popularity is in the bottom 20 percent of words. That high? <laughs> there's there's not that many volcanoes near me. So, yes. So apparently, if you're a volcanist, this is probably a little bit higher. There aren't a lot of smoked aged wines that are made anymore. It was really big in, um, well, I would say the last turn of the century, but we're now in, you know, whole, around 1900 yeah. uh, is the last time you saw a whole lot of those, kind of before uh, the full reunification of Italy. And it's the whole, yeah, thing. That whole thing, yeah. I can go into that. No, we're good. That's a, that's a topic for another day. <laughs> that's, a, that's a topic for the. Uh, for for something else that you deal with. <laughs> so, but I think what we're going to go ahead and do is hit these uh, illustrious, illustrious closing remarks here. And go to Mojico. Uh, well, first thing, since we're talking about maps and really it's kind of an extension of world building, I wanted to go ahead and throw something that I thought did a great job of expanding world building into those remarks. It is Sherlock Holmes in Orbit. It is a collection of short stories approved by the Conan Doyle estate that takes our famed detective of 221B Baker Street into a variety of different uh, situations, including space, vampires, and other science fiction settings. That sounds fun. That sounds really cool. It is. Ah. Let me see, let me see when it first came out. Uh, Nineteen ninety-five. Okay. Hmm. Okay. Wow. All right. That actually does sound a little familiar. Hmm. I don't remember that, but. Uh. Well. Having been to many. Uh, elementary and middle school uh, book fairs during the time period that we're in <laughs> out. <laughs> um, there's a good chance that could have been on the shelves. Oh, yeah. I, that is possible. It's got a really cool picture on the front of the copy I've got, which kind of has uh, a, a um, Sherlock Holmes, whose cap is starting to pull back, and you can see a cybernetic skull underneath it. Oh, that's cool. Well, it's a diptych, though, with the second image coming out of the smoke of the pipe. So it's cutting across his face, and you've got the shadowy old London inside, I'd say, what would be the smoke part of the diptych across the cyber Holmes in front of Reichenbach Falls. Oh. Okay, that is that is really cool. 
Well, right, Jeff, I don't, do I don't want? know if mine can compete, but while we were at Origins this year, I ran across an artist, and he had some really, really cool pieces. And I was just like, man, these are really fun. But they were like in the ballpark of 20 to $30 for a print. And I didn't have the space to get them home. Space. That is, that is the big problem. So I was like, well, so I was looking at his stuff and he's like, have you seen the Shadow Myths cards? And I'm like, no, I like the artwork. <laughs> he goes, they're going to love this. It's a deck of cards with all of this artwork. And he uses it for like jumping off points for either characters. They've used them in schools and a few other places. And it's really fun. And he talked to me for probably about 15 minutes about when he starts working on these and how he goes through the process to do them. And they're really fun, but they're interesting because they give kind of just enough, like it's snapshots of things and either as an author or something else, it may help as a jumping off point. And I think I paid $15 or something, maybe 20 for the whole deck of cards. And it is really cool to look through them and just, yeah, it's simple. Most of them are three, maybe four colors. He sticks to a pretty tight palette for them. So it's kind of fun. Um, there's some really dark ones in there and there's some ones that you can tell are much brighter mm. and yeah, it's, it's kind of cool, but I have a twofer because this one got brought to my attention and I have my wife to blame because she told <laughs> me that I could get this once I do something <laughs> And I have to play adult for a little while before I can get it. But it's a it's a monthly subscription box. And most of you are going, oh, like RPG Crate or Loot Crate. No. This is for all of those people that do tons of world building and want to draw things or write things physically. It's a notebook and pen slash pencil subscription box called scribe delivery. There are a lot of people who have taken up the whole bullet journaling thing that will find this eminently desirable. It's amazing. Um, I, I cannot wait. And the thing is, is that from what I've seen, the like the notebooks are not like, you know, like a $1 notebook that they're just slapping you know, a $30 price tag on. Um, these are like moleskin notebooks and things like that. So these are higher end notebooks that you'd be getting along with pretty decent pens and stuff. So 
I just saw it and I'm like, I, I want this so bad, but I have to justify it. And right now I just can't. <laughs> so it is what it is. It is. It sounds dangerous because I looked at some of the stuff and yeah, it looks really cool. Yeah. So yeah, for those who, you know, I mean, I've given a lot of shout outs for things that are like, you know, my, my pen and, and notebooks and stuff already. So yeah, you know, I'm going to do something like that. <laughs> so no, what do you have? I have a comedy special. I caught on Netflix the other day, uh, Eliza elder millennial. So we were having a conversation earlier this evening about different things that people have taken in different parts of their lives. And this comedy special was right up my alley. Uh, the comedian Liza Selfinger basically kind of covered all the kind of weird transitionary stuff that like millennials born in the early 80s kind of know and handle, but also just kind of a look at kind of modern culture and dealing with kind of tech and people in the everyday life nowadays, you know, even covering the wonders of modern dating and you wanting to have some awesome, great story, and turns out, no, we met on an app. <laughs> <laughs> but it it was a lovely special. She was really good, very smart. Uh, kind of, you can see a lot of the different threads of where kind of her comedy kind of comes from. But you could see like a little bit of kind of Robin Williams in there, a little bit of Ellen DeGeneres in there, a lot of good stuff. Okay. So definitely recommend it. It's on Netflix. There's some like trailers for it on YouTube. So, check it out. Okay. Well, hey, D. Yes. Do you have something you'd like to uh, shout out? Um, well, I've kind of been <laughs> shouting out my own stuff this whole episode. <laughs> so, um, aside from that, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I guess I could go um, shout out some stuff on Netflix as well. There's a great series called Cosmos. Um hosted by Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, it's kind of a remake slash reboot of the old version of Cosmos from the 70s, which was hosted by our dear Carl Sagan. Um, so Neil deGrasse Tyson was actually Carl Sagan's protege and is become one of the great science communicators of our time. Um, and so Cosmos is 13-ish episodes of him explaining different scientific concepts, where they came from, um, and the, the people who created them. He's really great at humanizing science and showing it through the lens of not just like um, the, the quest for truth and understanding um, through empirical evidence of the universe, but also the, the human side of science, um, human, uh, science as a, as a human institution that is just as fallible and just as dogmatic as other institutions have the capacity to be. Um, he's very inspiring, and if you have any sense, if you want to do anything related to science fiction, or even just have um, a sense of where exactly in, in Earth's sort of technological timeline you'd like to set your own stories and games, it's a, a great resource. You'll understand a whole lot about a whole lot, and um, just have a great... Um, perspective on on timelines and the evolution of technology and science the better to make your games with my dear <laughs> awesome that is cool 
Yeah, it's great. I like it. All right. All right. Well, I guess that is going to uh, wrap this bad boy up and uh, make this a show, folks. So, (laughs) until next time, have... Keep playing those games. Keep making those maps. And have a lot of fun. And have a lot of fun and <laughs> and have a good one, folks. Bye-bye. You can contact us or the show using Twitter, Facebook, or plain old email. Our Twitter accounts are at Zendead, at Jules Podcaster, and at 2050Gardemoget. And the show's Twitter account is at SeizeTheGM. You can find us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash SeizeTheGM. Or chat with us and other RPG lovers in our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash seize the GM. You can email questions or comments to the show at admin at seize the GM.com. And if you have a few bills you want to send us, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash seize the GM podcast. And we thank you. joining us for this episode of Seize the GM. Feel free to leave a comment about this episode on our webpage www.seizethegm.com Let the dice fall where they may, and we'll see you all again next week. Seize the GM is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License. All copyrighted materials referenced herein are held by their respective owners. No infringement intended, and no claim of ownership is implied. The music for the show is Dreaming Spirit off the album Ghost Machine by the Enigma TNG. His music is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license.